truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Ron Wright, welcome to Open Mic. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been reading all about you, lots of articles, and and what a uh, what an ordeal you've been through. Um, I appreciate you coming on Open Mic to talk about it. You know, before we dive into exactly what happened to you, you were you were in Desert Storm, you were in Desert Shield, uh, you were an active Florida police officer. Sheriff, uh, at the time all this went down, is that true? Yes, sir. Well, I wasn't an active uh, deputy sheriff. I pr- formerly worked as a sheriff's deputy and for another local police department as well there in the Orlando area. What made you want to serve your country and serve your the cities you lived in? Well, for one, like you said, that was my hometown. I knew a lot of other law enforcement officers, a lot of deputies specifically, and they always did a lot for me. They were always very kind and considerate of me. We talked a lot and they were a good inspiration, you know, good role models to look up to. And I went out and rode with them a lot and I liked what I saw and I liked, you know, the way they interacted with people. And I thought maybe one day I'd like to be able to come back and do the same for my community and my neighborhood as well, especially considering the type of neighborhood I grew up in. Got it. And, and did you grow up in Florida? Yes, sir. Born and raised there in Orlando. Are you still there? I still live there. I'm a little bit outside of the Orlando area now. I live with my sister a little bit further south of there. But that that whole area is considered the Orlando, Central Florida area. So all all of that is home. Got it. So let's go back to 2007. Um, You were living in the Orlando area. You were married with a 10-year-old son at the time? Yes, sir. A son and a stepdaughter, but I was actually living over in Tampa. Uh, I was on orders working at MacDill Air Force Base. I was a military reservist on active duty orders as a result of the events of September 11, 2001. Got it. And tell me, uh, let's start, I guess, with how you met um, Paula O'Connor. What year was that? That was back in 2000, latter part of 2003, early part of 2004. You know, a lot of us military guys that were living there and working at the base in Tampa, when we had the time, we'd always get together either someplace, you know, off base downtown or one of the apartment complexes where a lot of us resided. And we'd have these get togethers because it, it was a big group of us Air Force people. Plus, we had a large group of armor reservists that were assigned to us working with us as well. So we'd like to go out and do the barbecues and hang out by the pool or something like that. And that was where I met her through some other military folks that I worked with and supervised initially. Okay. And did you eventually date this woman? No, we didn't date. We had a very good friendship. Uh, We started by talking with her computer problems that we talked about a lot. 
And ultimately, it led to me coming over to her home. She invited me over to physically look at her computer because trying to do it all over the phone got to be kind of a problem, especially when I'm on the base at work and she calls me telling me what it's doing. And I couldn't really, you know, see what she's seeing on the screen or much less walk her through certain things. And then the interruptions because, well, I, well, I was on duty at the time. Okay. So, um, I, I have not been able to read the trial transcripts. Um, I, 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 um, very I didn't get them. I just want to take too long. <laughs> well, I'm not going to read them today. I'm going to just ask you questions, yeah. curious questions. I'm sure a lot of this stuff sure. is in there. So just bear with me because the information I have is through a few articles and some interviews. Um, but I'm, I'm a curious guy. And uh, so <clears throat> just bear with me. Just bear with me. So okay. um, throughout your trial up until today, so you've maintained that you've that you never had a romantic physical relationship with her. Yeah, that's correct, sir. It was never that type of a relationship. Apparently, there was some interest on her part in it, from what I understand, because she apparently had been saying something completely different to her friends and her mother that I heard learned about when they testified during the trial. But the one thing I could not understand is where all that was coming from, because it was never that type of a you know, relationship where we were looking long-term at anything. We were just casual friends on a platonic level that, you know, she'd come to some of the things where we went to hang out. And sometimes she found out about things I didn't even know she knew about and would call me and ask me what time am I going? Cause she wanted to ride with me. So, how, I mean, so describe your friendship. Uh, would you see her weekly, daily, monthly when you were in town? No, I'd only hear from her on, you know, periodically when she had another problem with her computer and when I couldn't, re you know, resolve that over the phone, then it was a matter of, well, when are you off next? Can you come over and all this stuff? So, and then there were times where she invited me out to places because she knew of other good restaurants that uh, I wasn't aware of. And when she, you know, let me know these things, I'd invite her to come out, her and her daughter, and, you know, we'd have dinner or lunch or something like that when the time was available for it. Okay. And she was, you met her, you said late 2006, early 2007? No, 2003, 2004. Three. I apologize. So uh, fast forward. So she was uh, murdered in 2007 with her young son, correct? Yes. Yes, sir. And so you had known her for three plus years at that point. Correct. And before she was murdered, uh, she put out a blog post on a military type website accusing you of all kinds of things is that true that is correct which i didn't find out about until the day i learned that the murders had occurred wow okay so so it, it never uh it never got to you before she was already uh deceased um in those letters, in that one blog I read today, you know, she said she alleged all kinds of things about you, that you were in a, a romantic relationship, that you were the father of her child, that she had talked to your wife. Um, all of those things are not true. Well, I believe she had been in contact with my ex-wife, which I learned of later, but uh, it, there was no romantic relationship between her and I. Uh, the circumstances under which she became pregnant are also very questionable which I'll never get the answers of the rest of the story behind either. 
So you were divorced at this time when this was all going on? No, sir. I was estranged from my wife. We were living separately, but we were not officially divorced yet. Got it. So when, I mean, so you learned, you, what did, so how did you find out that she, she and her son were murdered? I got a visit from the St. Petersburg police detectives over on the base. Uh, they sat, came over, sat down with me. We talked for a good while. And then afterwards I went home back to my apartment. Well, while I was there, my flight chief called me to tell me that, you know, he wanted to check on me and let me know I'm all over the news. And there's all these stories probably floating around in everybody's mind. So I started getting online to search all these news reports because when I turned on the TV, I hadn't seen any of them yet. And that's when I found a link to this website she put up that she pretty much had a lot to say about me. <clears throat> what did, how did you feel when you read that? I had no idea she'd been thinking these things and feeling that way because we had not been in contact at that point for about two years. Really? Absolutely. Wow. And I assume, I mean, this is not that long ago. There's cell phone records. There's evidence. I'm sure that, that there weren't any contacts. I mean, if there were phone calls, there'd be evidence of it. That's correct. In fact, the state called the, uh, representative from Sprint Nextel to come testify about my cell phone ping locations during the time of the murders. They never said anything about contact between me and her and how long ago it had been and all of that, which they easily could have discovered. But I think they weren't talking about that so much because when I told them I hadn't been in contact with her for almost two years, that was something that didn't help their case. So they, they weren't interested in speaking about that. But interestingly enough, when the Sprint Nextel representative testified as to my cell phone tower pings, none of them were in Pinellas County, St. Petersburg, or anywhere near this woman's home. It was all in South Tampa near the base right where I was and was supposed to be. Did your defense attorney ask uh, about when the last time there were phone calls between the two of you? I don't recall he may have because we had to do the task, you know, the hard task of bringing out all the things that the prosecutors didn't want to discuss or, you know, put in front of the jury. And I know I, I feel like I'm jumping around a bunch. Um, she was murdered in 2007. Um, three weeks before the murder. Uh, is it true that she sued you for medical bills for this child? Well, it was a paternity action that she filed, and included in that were the uh, medical costs for the child's uh, medical care after the birth, which, you know, I, of course, I got the paperwork for the paternity suit, but these uh, medical issues I had no idea, no knowledge of prior to these murders happening. This so was something where I even had conversation with my first sergeant because I didn't believe that she was pregnant. She never discussed any of that with me, much less me being the father of the child. And what I told my first sergeant was, is, you know, two things have to happen. First of all, we need to do the forms for TRICARE to have this child enrolled in the TRICARE system, which is what the company that manages the military health care. And secondly, I need to do the DEERS form to add this child as one of my dependents in my military personnel records. So I got the forms, the blank forms, and I signed my payroll signature on it and told my first sergeant she can fill in the rest of the information, but I want to know that she's actually pregnant. I want to talk to her. I want to find out, you know, when did all of this happen and why is it I never heard about it? That, that's very confusing to me. 
Why would you want to add her to your health insurance if you never had sex with her? Well, it turns out I did have sex with her, but the circumstances under which that took place were something that I was totally unaware of. I'm not saying that I was drugged or something. I, I told the prosecutors, even my attorneys, I remember being at her home that night, which I later found out was the night she got pregnant. Uh, we were drinking a couple beers and she made these jello shots that she had all these different flavors and she wanted me to try them. So I kept trying and tasting them and, you know, I ate all those jello shots. The next thing I remembered was waking up in the morning with broad daylight, you know, sunlight shining in my face. I was in her bed, which there was a photograph of, and I don't remember ever even going into her bedroom. We were in her living room with her daughter when I got there. But the problem is there were two different versions of the story from that night. The mother had one on her website and the daughter testified to a second version of the story. And I found it oddly interesting when I pointed out to my attorney that, you know, this is two different versions of that story. And when you look at them, one tends to defeat the purpose of the other. And one didn't mention a single detail from the other. And on top of that, neither one of those came from me. You know, the mother says we had this argument then ended up making up and having such great makeup sex that she got pregnant. Well, the daughter's version is I showed up over there. I think she told the detective so pissy drunk, I didn't even know where I was to the extent that I mistook a bedroom closet for a bathroom and urinated in it. What did your, what did the daughter say about, I mean, it's a whole, uh, so that was, that's okay. So, <laughs> this is new information that, that I didn't read about. So um, are you still maintaining that this is the only time you ever had sex with this woman or could there possibly be other times that you don't remember? No, sir. That was the only time that I actually did not remember at all. That was the only time you did not remember. Were there times that you do remember now? No, no, there, there were no other oh. times we were okay. intimate or sexually involved. So you had sex with her once. Uh, you don't remember it. And she got pregnant. Correct. Okay. And the daughter didn't contradict uh, that statement. The daughter didn't say he's over here all the time having sex with my mom or I see him coming out of my mom's bedroom all the time. She didn't say any of that. No, she did know that I'd been over at the house a lot. In fact, I did a lot of things to help her daughter out. She was an Army ROTC in high school and had been having issues. So I talked with her daughter a lot, you know, helped her out with things, gave her rides to places when I could. You know, we, we had a great, you know, relationship as far as, you know, me being somebody she could talk to and answer questions for. And when she wanted to come on base to pick up something from clothing sales store, you know, for her ROTC uniform. I helped her with that as well. So did she, okay. So the baby was how old when it was murdered? I think they said about a year and a half. And you're saying that this months. event, this event was, over two years before the murders, the, this one night stand for lack yes, of a better word. Correct. Mm -hmm. So did the daughter agree with your statement that you hadn't been to that house in two years? Cause you're describing a very close relationship. And yet then you said earlier that you hadn't been to that house and or seen the mom in over two years. Uh, did she can confirm that? 
to an extent. I mean, she knew that, um, I guess, uh, when her mom got pregnant, there was another little falling out between us that I ended up just letting her know when she wanted to talk to me like a reasonable grown adult to call me, but just to call me and yell at me about this other issue she brought up, I wasn't going to, you know, engage in that. But she and a couple of her friends, I believe, did testify that they had seen me at her home when she was as big as a house and so forth. And my attorneys were like, well, there's no evidence of that other than their word saying so, because obviously they can go back into my cell phone records and see if my phone was ever in that area. So you're did, so you're you're maintaining that you didn't see her pregnant ever. Exactly. In fact, that was her contention, I believe, in her website as well, that when she got pregnant, I suddenly disappeared. But it actually yep. kind of started a little bit prior to that. Nope. She did. She did say that you. Yeah, she did say she told you about the pregnancy and you basically ghosted her. Um, so you're so you're not denying that the the this uh, that the baby Elijah, who was uh, sadly murdered in 2007 was in fact your child. That's correct. We stipulated to paternity at the trial and I didn't want to challenge or argue with the paternity test. Okay. So you never denied that the baby was yours. That's correct. Well, after the fact, but before that I was denying paternity because I didn't even know she was pregnant and I had not been sleeping with her. In fact, she had a boyfriend a few boyfriends that I was aware of, and there would have been no chance for us to have an intimate relationship like that. So you were interviewed by the police shortly after these murders. You're all over the news. Uh, I assume you told the police basically what you just told me. Exactly. And they did not arrest you for approximately six years after the murders is that true that's correct um i think well you know in florida all felonies have to be reported to the state attorney's office and the state attorney's investigator testified at the trial that they got the case 11 months later as an unresolved homicide so it wasn't the police detective's decision to come after me and charge me. It was the state attorney's office that made that decision after they picked up the case and continued to investigate and attempt to develop something in it. And that resulted in my being arrested December the 31st, 2008. That was my first night in jail. So what happened between 2008 and 2013 trial? Did you remain in jail for five years? Oh, yes. I, I was actually in pretrial confinement until the trial began in January of 2013. That's outrageous. So, wow. I mean, what was that like? I mean, you, you maintained your innocence the whole time. Absolutely. And, and I, I, that could be the longest I've heard of, uh, of a pretrial confinement. What, I mean, so much for the constitutional right to a speedy trial. Well, I believe we did waive that because, you know, our task at that point is getting everything in discovery and then trying to get the other things that the state or the detectives weren't wanting to divulge or disclose, which I would find out later was some pretty big pieces of information that my attorneys are telling me now they never heard of. I found out about something else after I was released from prison in uh, 2017 that I didn't know was a part of this case.
Like what? Well, I got a call from a friend of mine, and he told me, you're going to find out about it eventually, but it looks like there was more information in your case that apparently was never disclosed. I says, what are you talking about? It? And I says, well, apparently there was another case out of the First District Court of Appeal in Florida, which is up in the Panhandle area in Tallahassee. Uh, I think it's Klein v. State. This was a guy whose case appeared to be somewhat similar to mine, where he murders his wife and takes off and ends up getting caught and convicted of the murder. Well, he was sentenced to life, but in appealing his case, he cited my case. Reading the opinion in that case, they, the court wrote that while they were affirming his conviction and sentence, they were writing to say why the two cases were distinguished. And one of the things that they mentioned when they spoke of the victims in that opinion was that the victim in my case had been known to have parties at her home and sell drugs out of that house. And this was something I never knew about. And if the police knew about it, they never investigated it or at least never bothered to disclose that in discovery. Okay. So. Okay, so you learned that when you when you got out of uh, prison. Um, so during so so tell me let's let's tell me about uh, did you have court appointed attorneys? Did the military give you an attorney? Did you hire private attorneys? No, my attorneys were appointed, as you know, in capital cases you're entitled to two. So the court appointed one, and he brought on the uh, second chair who handled most of the guilt phase of the trial. And they were going after the death penalty against you from the beginning. Correct. I was notified of that following uh, early on in my incarceration and pretrial confinement. So for five years, your two court appointed attorneys went through the discovery process, gathered as much information and got ready for the 2013 trial. Correct. And, uh, you know, we, we've interviewed, uh, Ron, a lot of exonerees on this show. Um, mm -hmm. I'd say almost universally, the court appointed attorneys didn't do a stellar job. Tell me about these two attorneys. Uh, were you happy with them? Were they, were they, uh, did they keep you in the loop? Did they come and prepare with you? Were they smart people? Tell me, tell me what you thought of them. Yes, I thought they did a very good job, despite the fact that we lost a trial. But I say that because I learned early on, having a background in criminal justice, that, you know, when you're on trial for something, you're actually fighting two battles at one time. Your first objective is to be acquitted at trial. But secondly, if you don't prevail, then you're preparing the record for the appeal. And I think that's where they did a completely stellar job and, you know, protecting the record and raising the right objections and raising the right, you know, other issues that needed to be brought out because there was just so much more that the prosecutors weren't willing to tell or talk about. They were more focused on, you know, pinning the, the, the whole blame and, and responsibility for these murders on me. And I think the prosecutor's sole, you know, method of doing that was simply assassinating my character and insulting my integrity. All of this other stuff didn't matter. It, it was all about the story that they could tell and no evidence to support any of it. Let's let's talk about the evidence. I've mentioned some of them and I'll recap it quickly. Um, we talked about uh, the fact that that the child was yours. We talked about that. She sued you three weeks earlier for, uh, medical bills. Uh, you, you were married at the time. Uh, you were married, even though you were estranged. And then 
the last piece of circumstantial evidence that I want to talk to you about is the gloves and, 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 um, they found a glove at the scene of the murders that, uh, was some kind of military glove that possibly, uh, were stored or were accessible on the military base that you were in, that you may or may not have had access to these types of gloves that DNA, was found and then it wasn't found. Tell me about this glove. Yeah, there was a lot of talk about this glove. The glove is actually what we call a Nomex Flyers glove. It's got like a leather palm with Nomex material around it that it's designed for pilots and aircrew members to wear so that in the event of an aircraft mishap, they can, you know, affect proper egress with, you know, fire and heat that they're going to need their hands to be extricated from a downed aircraft with. My unit, as the base cops on, on the base, we were issuing those gloves to all of our personnel because of the vehicle searches we conducted at the gates. And it was simply a matter of a glove that was authorized to be worn in uniform. And they're not the very best gloves for that type of work, but it's a uniform issued uniform item that, you know, we have plenty of and we can replace as they get covered with grease and oil or ripped and torn and all that all the time. So there was a, you know, it was a widely popularly, popularly used glove throughout the entire DOD. You know, they manufactured them in the uh, green color, the desert tan color, as well as all black. And my unit was issued the black ones, as were many other military services and units around the world. What the prosecution contended was they put on evidence about my unit having ordered a shipment of these gloves in February of 2007, which we did. My supply NCO went over and received that order. What the prosecution did at that point was try to demonstrate that we had just gotten an order of those gloves and that since I had access to them in the building where they were stored at, that the glove had to be mine and that it would have you know, pointed the finger at me as a murderer because I had access to those gloves. The issue with the gloves was the DNA testing that was done on them. Three different labs looked at this glove. It started with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement's lab, and their, their analysis concluded that I could not be excluded only as a possible contributor to the mixture of DNA found in this glove. The reason for that is this child being my biological son, as you may know, it's that Y chromosome that we use to determine paternity. They're exactly identical. Well, the state's argument was the child wasn't in the military, couldn't have worn that glove. So where else could that Y chromosome have come from that matches my Y chromosome and the child's? So we refuted that of course, but then they sent the glove to another independent lab. I think in Maryland, it was bold industries or something like that. They did their analysis on the glove and ended up identifying a full and complete DNA profile of somebody that was not either the victims nor was me. But when they put up the big chart in the courtroom, they went down the list of alleles on the DNA ladder and they highlighted all of those alleles that were consistent with my DNA. But we also saw all these other alleles in that pattern that aside from the other full DNA profile that was discovered, 
did not match either the victims or myself. So the struggle was is to determine who the major and minor contributors to this mixture was and how much of a contributor I would have been as opposed to the minor child who was my biological son. Okay. So all of that was brought into trial. Yes, sir. How long was this trial? About four weeks. And tell me about some of the other evidence. Were, were you, did you present alibi witnesses? No, sir. That's just it. You know, we as law enforcement, we don't get a schedule of when crimes are going to occur, who's going to commit them and what locations they're going to happen at. Had I known something like this would have been going on, of course, I would have made sure either one, it was prevented or didn't happen or two, I was certainly alibied for it. So it was no chance it could have been me. But no, I, I had no clue. I mean, I, I was up till well after 2 a.m. on the base doing some other work. I went home after that. I was working on some other training material I had and eventually fell asleep until I heard the garbage people coming to pick up garbage, which is what woke me up late. And I had a meeting I was scheduled to attend on base that morning and then some barrier training I had to attend later on around 10 a.m. So I got up finally made my way through all the traffic to get on base went to the first office i was supposed to meet with another uh, civilian employee with to turn in some paperwork later on after that i think i went and got something to eat or went to starbucks and then eventually attended the barrier training at the main gate at 10 a.m that morning what time did the murders happen approximately they said they yeah they said between four and six a.m and the prosecutor's contention about that was First, he said I couldn't establish my timeline. Then he said that um, I had no alibi and my whereabouts could not be confirmed. Yet they present the cell tower ping showing exactly where my phone was, which is where I would have been. There were even phone calls that I had made and received on my phone that morning as well. Where, where, how far did, was the base from her home? About 30 minutes, 20 to 25 to 30 minutes away. And, and her daughter wasn't home at the time of the murders? That was another curiously interesting thing to me. I was unaware that she and her daughter had had some sort of falling out and that I don't know if she kicked the daughter out or if the daughter just moved out and went and moved in with her boyfriend. But I found out during the trial, after the state continuously contended that they had such a loving, kind relationship, just how volatile their relationship was actually had actually become to the extent that I think they said she discovered the daughter had been coming back and taking things out of the house. So she took the daughter's key and also changed the locks. This was the testimony from a friend of the mother's that, you know, I, I wasn't in contact with her. So I didn't know the daughter wasn't there. So whoever committed this crime was obviously aware the daughter was not in the home when they decided to go in there and whatever took place following that happens. Now, this daughter received half a million dollars in life insurance proceeds? More than half a million. I think it was somewhere around 540000 if I remember correctly. Did your attorneys ever point to her as a possible suspect at trial? Oh, my attorneys did. It was law enforcement and the state attorney's office that didn't. They did so much. You know, One of our biggest complaints during the trial was that the prosecutors were improperly bolstering their witness. I mean, to me, it seemed like they did more to defend her than they did trying to prosecute me. Cause they wanted her cooperation probably. 
Well, not only did, well, they already had her on the hook for that. She had a drug possession charge that uh, I think she was entered into a pretrial diversion program for. And from what I understand, she was possibly looked at or viewed as their star witness somehow. Interesting. Did um, back to the glove for a second. Now this, this glove that was left at the scene, um, did it have, I mean, in your opinion, after sitting through this trial, did the murderer wear this glove? I don't believe so. And I say that for one reason only. I've worn these gloves just like many other military personnel, and they are not in any way tactical type of gloves that you would put on and expect to go out and physically deal with somebody. And as you probably are aware, there are other equipment, you know, and issued items like tactical gloves and gloves made to keep your hands from getting poked and jabbed by sharp objects when you're searching somebody or gloves you use when you're shooting your firearm or getting physical in the process of apprehending somebody to restrain them. These gloves, we'd have never done something like that in those gloves. And that but, was one of the things that came out later in the oral arguments that it was hard to understand um, how this, you know, this one glove is left because there was some back and forth about whether or not the killer took the glove off, put it on because, and that was because the DNA from both the mother and the child were found inside the glove. They scraped inside and outside and the Florida Supreme court justices couldn't figure out how the victim's DNA ends up inside the glove. So what I talked to my attorneys about during that, you know, the trial phase was this tells me that, and I know she knew a lot of other military people. And to this day, we don't know how long that glove was at that home, when it arrived there, or by what means it arrived there, or what she was doing with it in that home. But for the victim, you know, the child's DNA to wind up inside the glove, that gave me the opinion that either that glove was in the home long enough, long before the murders, for the child to have handled or played with it, or, as you know, with DNA transfer, someone who's handled the child to have transferred the child's DNA in, inside the glove. Did they pull a Johnny Cochran on you and ask you to try on the glove? Oh, no. They didn't do any of that. I don't know why that question just dawned on me, but they could have. Well, it wasn't an issue of whether or not the glove could have fit me. I told them I had, you know, at least two pairs of those gloves in my possession because I was a part of that unit. They were issued to me as well when the fingertip ripped or the seams started breaking or they were no longer pliable after they've gotten wet we'd throw them out and go get another pair issued to us you know anything that touches the skin is not accounted for has to be returned you simply throw them away and you get issued another pair well i've had at least two pair in my course of service at that base so i, I didn't deny having those gloves but i couldn't say anything about the glove that was left at the scene their main contention was is that my unit just ordered a, an order of those gloves. So not only did we have them in stock and in the size that I told the detectives I wore, I think I even showed them my gloves in my gear bag in my rucksack. But um, they, they, they basically weren't concerned about whether or not the glove fit me or, you know, anything like that. They were more concerned with he's military. This is a military item. And I think they said during the trial that you can't go buy these at Target or on the street someplace, which isn't completely true either. There's a lot of catalogs out there like Quartermaster, U.S. Calvary, and others that actually do sell these gloves. The difference is, is they're all stamped with an NSN, a national stock number, 
that says what batch they were, you know, part of in the manufacturing. I mean, they went so far as to call the representative from the company that manufactured these gloves for us and had her come in and testify about the entire process that it goes through when they're manufacturing, how she did her quality control checks, and she physically tried on every glove before they were packaged and ready to be shipped out. But the problem with this glove is, is we don't even know that this glove was ever even on McGill Air Force Base, much less used in the murder, because the state actually had no evidence or nothing to offer in terms of the glove playing a role in the murders. Do you have any idea where they found it in the home? I believe it was, I think my, I remember my attorney telling me it was almost as if it was presented because it was on the side of a couch, which was right next to the front door. And when I watched the, I don't know if you watched the oral arguments online with the Florida Supreme Court, but they had a lot of questions about that with how the glove was, you know, supposedly warned to go commit a murder. And then for some reason, you take the glove off and walk out the front door with one glove and her vehicle was taken from the scene as well. No fingerprints from me anywhere in the home, anywhere in her vehicle yet. You know, if you're wearing a glove to do something, you don't want to leave DNA or fingerprints behind with, you don't take it off when you're ready to leave after you've done the dirty deed that that just made no sense to any of anybody. Uh, Ron, I read something that the police uh, alleged that you didn't, cooperate in their investigation uh do you feel like you cooperated absolutely um actually there were three separate conversations i had with these detectives uh before i was arrested and then the fourth and final one the day i was arrested i never lawyered up i never told them i didn't want to talk to them i was very happy to discuss anything i could with them one because i want to find out what's going on and two if there's anything i can you know, share that might help, you know, however remote, I was more than happy to do that. But those conversations were willing, voluntary, and never an issue. Now, the only thing that I think they're referring to in this was when they asked me for a DNA sample or a blood sample or something, and I told them, no, I think I'd rather talk with a lawyer first about this, which is, you know, what anyone should do. And they ended up going and getting a warrant for my DNA once they discovered that I was a biological match for the paternity of the child. Got it. Now let's talk about all this circumstantial evidence. Um, before we started the show today, my, my team was, you know, we were talking about this, you know, that your exoneration was based upon the fact that this is purely circumstantial evidence. And I remember in law school back in the eighties, my uh, professor Don Keenan actually was his name. So my team was talking about you know this case and how it was purely circumstantial evidence. And circumstantial evidence basically is like if somebody walked into your home and they had a wet umbrella and you assume that it's raining outside, but you actually didn't see the evidence of rain, that's circumstantial evidence that it was raining. And in your case, uh, the uh, being sued for medical bills, uh, the alleged or the infidelity uh, that you were married and having sex um, – the glove, uh, and, and, and these types of things are circumstantial evidence. The, the, the fact that there was no DNA, DNA is evidence, but there was no DNA. The arguments that they made, um, the website, all of these things are circumstantial evidence. Um, are you, as you look back on this, uh, 
these years later. Are you surprised that the jury convicted you based upon this circumstantial evidence, or can you kind of understand it? I can partially understand it. In fact, I remember telling one of my trial attorneys, if you listen to the way the state is telling their story, and the truth is it's their story, they get to tell it how they want to. And it does not matter if it's the truth or not, or if this is the actual party that committed the crime or not. But when you listen to what they say and how they put on evidence, like the video that they played, I felt like if I'd have been sitting in that jury, I'd have been, you know, I couldn't wait to say guilty myself. Fascinating. Yeah, I, I hear you. And as I was reading the articles, I kind of had similar thoughts to you. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's easy to see how they were able to weave that story. They got 12 people to agree that you were guilty. They were able to get through the, the sentencing phase and, and they sentenced you to death. Yes, sir. That uh, that vote was a bare majority, a seven to five vote for death over life. Um, one of the things that I will tell you, I recalled about that trial is I told my trial lawyers afterwards, this did not appear to be a murder case to me. This felt more like a paternity case masquerading as a murder case. And, and the, the whole, you know, driving theory of the uh, prosecution was this was a guy who simply didn't want to take responsibility for a child he fathered out of wedlock and thought that it would be the best thing to do to just make it all go away, which I would never have considered. I'm a guy who happens to love children. I always have. And that, that's one of my soft spots. So there's no way I would ever harm a child, much less somebody else, you know, outside of the line of duty and discharging my duties. I hear you. I mean, the, yeah, I, I mean, the three weeks before getting sued for these things and to be quite honest with you, Ron, I mean, the story about you not remembering having sex and only having sex one time is hard to believe. I know it, it is. And I know my terms about that. And, you know, the best thing they could add, you know, offer to me was, well, it's all going to come down to what the paternity test shows. I says, well, I can understand that. But, you know, these guys talked to my neighbors in my apartment and they told the detectives they never saw this woman over there in my apartment. If I was having some sort of a relationship or how is it no one else knew about it except supposedly her daughter and her friends? They even put her mother on the stand to testify about, uh, her asking me a question when this woman invited me to go riding horses at their stables once. And she did. She asked me what were my intentions toward her daughter. And I really didn't have an answer. And when the prosecutor asked me, what did he say? It was an answer. She's like, well, he really didn't say anything. He didn't have an answer. And I leaned over and told my lawyer, that's true, because I had no idea where the hell that question was coming from. So it, it was one of those things where she had one version of, you know, the relationship in her mind. And my, my attorney actually told me he felt this was a woman who was somehow obsessed with me. And, and what she saw in me, I did not know. She knew I was married. She knew I wasn't from the Tampa area, that I lived in Orlando and home with wife and two children. And she knew that I was only in Tampa at McGill Air Force Base on temporary orders that could end at any time or I could be sent someplace else at any time. 
but then they found a um a diary or some letters or something that apparently she wrote to me that she never met and i says, i don't know what to tell you about that so you said a few minutes ago that it, your your lawyer thought it all hinged on the paternity test the paternity test came back saying you were the father of the child um tell me about the day when you guys all learned that that actually happened during the course of the investigation before I was arrested. And that was something the detectives did come over and talk to me about. And they showed me the paternity test report. I simply told them, I don't know what to tell you. I can't argue with that. And I'm not going to attempt to. I know I did spend time with this woman at her home. I had spent the night over there on at least one occasion that I recall that we discussed. But we were not having an intimate or sexual relationship. In fact, she had more than one boyfriend over the course of my being, you know, acquainted with her that I was well aware of. I was at her home with them. You know, I'd seen her out in other places with these boyfriends. So and and somehow the state never wanted to mention any of that or talk about that. But then we also find out that one of the responding police officers who initially responded to the crime scene and walked through the crime scene was actually engaged in an intimate relationship with her uh, at the time the murders occurred. Well, that's bizarre as well. But when you found out you didn't deny it, uh, you told them about the fact that you were over there drunk and the daughter thought you were going to pee in a closet or, or something like that. Um, my question, uh, my follow-up to that is, um, how often would you get that drunk and, and act that way? I mean, was this a once-in-a-lifetime thing, or were you having alcohol issues back then? No, the answer to your question is, I never got drunk and went out doing anything like that. This was an occasion where she had asked me to come over to her house that night, and I did. She offered me a beer, and I did have a couple of beers that I recall. And then there were all these jellies that she kept wanting me to try. But the thing is, is I wouldn't have arrived there drunk like her daughter said, because, I mean, all this distance between my apartment and her home, how could you accomplish that type of, you know, trans? traversing real estate and be so drunk you don't know where you are you maintain that she invited you over got you drunk on jello shots um you got so inebriated that you didn't remember having sex with her that's that's that is what you're telling us correct well i didn't know that she not only had i had sex with her that she had gotten pregnant when i woke up the next morning I was in her bed under the covers. I wasn't wearing my shirt, which she apparently went and put in the washing machine and had to bring to me, but I was wearing my shorts. And I had no recollection of how I got to her bedroom, much less in her bed. I found my shoes right down by the side of the bed, which I put them on. Everything was in my pockets and my shorts. And when I asked her where my shirts were, you know, my head was kind of spinning out of control and I had this banging headache. Um, she went and brought, I always wore a t-shirt under either a pullover or button down shirt. And she brought them to me and it was obvious. She just pulled them out of the dryer. She'd washed them. And I told her I needed to work that night. So I got to get going home. But I thanked her for, you know, letting me sleep off, you know, having all of that alcohol and not 
you know, having to have to attempt to drive home and not end up in jail for DUI or something. But I left her house and I remember I got so thirsty, I couldn't stand it. I stopped at a convenience store along the way and bought two bottles of water. I think I finished drinking one of them before I even got to the register to pay for them. And I went on home, had some more water and some juice and then laid down, took a nap before my alarm went off for me to get up and go to work that night. Were you a big drinker at the time? No, not at all. This is the thing that I don't understand because the daughter's version of the whole alcohol involvement was completely different from the mother's because the mother on her website didn't say anything about me drinking or being inebriated or mistaking a bedroom closet for a uh, bathroom or any of that. And this, she claims we had some big fight or argument that we made up from and I never argued with this woman at all until towards the end of our uh, contact when she was asking me to do something I was refusing to do. You know, as I'm sitting here listening to you for the last almost hour, Ron, you know, this woman, if you're, if, if this is all true, what you're telling us, she had to have been mentally ill. She had to have been, I mean, she was delusional. Like, like the, the story that she wrote in the blog and, and all of these things, um, she had to be mentally unstable. Do you disagree? I never saw any evidence of this for the initial time frame that we were acquainted until towards the end when she just like flipped a switch. What, what happened was she had gotten concerned about who her daughter had been hanging out and socializing with after school and wanted me to play private investigator to go spy on her daughter. And I told her, no, I wouldn't do that. I don't have jurisdiction. You know cops with the St. Pete Police Department and other people. You need to speak to them. If there's an issue with your daughter, you need to take that up, you know, with them and let them tell you the things that you need to know. But I, I can't do that. Not only that, but there had been a um, another incident or something. Her brother was incarcerated. And she was trying to get him furlough time to come stay at her house. Well, she asked me to write something or sign some form for it. And I told her, no, I couldn't do that. Not because I was a military cop, but, you know, I have no role to play in this. If he's going to come stay with you, you need to be the one to, you know, take care of that and let them, you know, make sure that they're okay with her, him coming to your house. And then I think sometime afterwards, she had called me almost every night, two or three times in a row because the St. Petersburg police department kept coming over, kicking in her door, looking in her windows and searching her home. And apparently this guy, her brother rather had, I think he somehow got out some, I don't know if it was a work release thing or whatever, but he didn't come back. So that automatically triggers a warrant for his arrest. And her address was one of it was one of his last known addresses. And she kept telling me I could have helped her brother out. I had money. I had a place for him to go. I could have gotten him out of the state and all this stuff. And I says, are you crazy? That's aiding and abetting a fugitive. The best thing he could possibly do is turn himself back in and finish out whatever it is he's got going on there and do it in a positive way so that he doesn't end up with more charges and more time to have to stay locked up. 
But if you know where he is, you need to tell them because the sooner they have him, the sooner they quit coming, knocking on your door and kicking it in, looking for him. And she just blew up like, you know, the 4th of July at me, started calling me names, was always crying, yelling and screaming. And I'm sorry, I don't engage in arguments with people that I don't need, even need to be a party, you know, to the discussion of. That was something that was just, you know, what, what she was asking me completely out of bounds and way over the line. And there was no way I was going to acquiesce to any of that. And she wasn't happy with that at all. And finally got to the point to where I stopped calling her and told her when you can talk to me like a decent grown adult and have a, you know, a decent conversation with me, you let me know. But until then, don't call me to fuss and argue and, you know, get all irate with me over something, you know, good and well, I cannot and will not do. The answer is not going to change. So that story, I hear the story, but it doesn't say to me, oh, but boy, she's nuts. She's crazy. She's mentally ill. She's manic depressive. She's whatever. Uh, well, that's what I'm saying. This was the first indication that I saw in her because before that, I never saw this type of attitude or behavior. We never had any disagreements or arguments. We were very cordial friends for, you know, the entirety of this acquaintance that never really went sideways. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't know where else to go with that. Uh, you didn't see evidence of it. Did you testify at trial? No, sir, I didn't. I wanted to, but my attorneys did not want me to. Was there evidence at trial of her being unstable in any way? I believe they looked into her medical history, and I think there was some talk of her being on medications. You know, this was all stuff I didn't know. So during the trial, I wasn't, you know, too interested or concerned about a lot of that. I was more concerned with why in the world do these people think I, of all people, would have gone and done something crazy like this. That, that was really what I was coming over to that courtroom for every day. I wanted to know what is the evidence or the reason they think this was me and not whoever actually did it. You mentioned, Ron, earlier that one of the prosecution's tactics was to basically assassinate your character. Um, mm -hmm. Other than the circumstantial evidence of, uh, of you getting sued three weeks earlier, the fact that it was your child and you were married the glove was there anything else that they used to assassinate your character that maybe things in the in your past or any other things that that uh you want to share with us there was a lot of this talk about me supposedly telling people i was away on secret missions which is completely untrue that term secret mission was something she came up with you know when i was unavailable couldn't answer my phone or was working the only thing I or any of my people ever say is we were working and when we're not working and we can call you back or answer the phone, we will. But the simple truth is, is there are certain secure facilities and buildings on that base where cell phones and personal electronics are not authorized to be inside. So most people would either leave their phones in their car or we have these lock boxes right outside the entrance doors where we would secure our phones there. But that that was something where they basically they use that to call me a big liar because you know in my entire time of service at mcdill air force base i never deployed anywhere outside of the city the state or the country i never missed a single day of work but there were a lot of days of work where i was unavailable to answer my phone or use my phone at all 
But, you know, when there were things going on, I didn't go into details about it. And, of course, when somebody wants to know, it's been two days or three days, what's going on? Why haven't you called me? This, that, and the other. And all I'm going to go into is the fact that I was working. That's all we're ever going to say. We're not going to go anything, you know, anywhere beyond that. But they tried to paint this picture of me being, you know, some, I guess, secret military guy doing all this secret stuff. And, you know, that being the case, I'm not going, nobody's going to talk about any of that anyway. And of course, most people will look at you and think, why so secretive? What's so, you know, big and important? You're not going to tell me what's really going on or what's what you were really doing or something. You only say you're working. Well, if I'm working, I'm working. How did your lawyers argue that you don't didn't remember having sex with her that night and that whole uh, series of events? How did they argue that without you testifying? They really didn't because the state really didn't focus a lot on that. Like I said, we stipulated to paternity at the trial. But ah. even before that, the prosecution really never, you know, talked much about that. So the jury never heard that story. You just admitted. So this jury assumed that you guys had a relationship. They don't know. They didn't know that that was the only time you ever had sex. I believe so. I think my attorneys may have, you know, touched on that at some point, but I, I don't recall specifically. Interesting. So I'm trying to reframe my mind. Uh, the jury, you know, I'm trying to put myself in the jury's mind, right? You've, you've admitted, mm -hmm. I told you when I read the, the uh, facts of your case that I, I probably would have convicted you. You probably would have convicted yourself. Uh, and, you know, is there anything in hindsight, what you think that you think your lawyers could have done differently at trial? Um. I think one of the things that made the bigger difference was the fact that this investigation started from the very first second focusing on me. Whoever else committed this or would have been involved or had knowledge of it, you know, they were never looked at. In fact, when they were doing DNA comparisons, I'm the only one they wanted DNA from to do any comparisons with. When they were looking at fingerprints, I'm the only one they wanted fingerprints from until they discovered the daughter's fingerprints on a window at the house and on the vehicle, the mother's vehicle that was taken from the home. Um, they, they really, you know, we, we, we found out in the middle of trial that they never looked at her laptop computer, which wasn't the computer she had when I knew her. We found out about this during trial, and I heard the prosecutor saying he'll give my counsel the access to it, but they really never looked in anything until some other things, you know, popped up out of that. But we're now in the middle of trial several years later. We found out she'd been getting uh, some death threats. She'd also had some white supremacist, you know, threatening communication coming to her. In fact, one of the other people we found out that she was intimate with was a man who used to be her mailman who approached the police and told them about her getting harassed sexually by somebody. They went back and, you know, brought up her text messages where there were some explicit text messages. She was sent by people that they never even looked into or investigated. Wow. Lots of, uh, it's, it's, it's quite the web here. Um, you're, you're convicted, you're sentenced to death. You spend, 
three to four years on death row in Florida. Tell me how the, uh, and which, first of all, which innocence project took on your case? Was it the Florida innocence project or was it a school innocence project? No, sir, none of them. In the state of Florida, the Florida state constitution requires that every death sentence case be reviewed by the Florida Supreme Court. It's going to happen automatically, whether you're confessing, pleading guilty, asking for death, no matter what, they have to review every death sentence case. It's what's known as a direct review or direct appeal directly to the state Supreme Court. On direct review is where I was acquitted and they, you know, did their analysis of the case and, you know, unanimously concluded to uh, reverse the judgments, vacate the sentences and remanded it to the trial court with directions to enter the judgments of acquittal. They found shot- that the- Go ahead. I'm, I didn't I know. I didn't mean to cut you off. Please finish. No, I was just going to say they simply found that there was no evidence that I neither committed this crime, was involved or complicit in it, or even had knowledge of it. The trial court disagreed with that. I assume it went through the appellate courts. The state Supreme Court directly to them from the trial court. Really? Yes, sir. There was no appellate court in between? Well, that's what I was just explaining. The Florida Constitution requires the Florida Supreme Court to review these death sentence cases, even on, you know, post-conviction motions and all of that. They review all of that in a death sentence case directly. So, no, there was no other appellate avenues pursued between the trial court and the direct review of the Florida Supreme Court. You you have to know how rare this is to, to overturn a jury set, a jury verdict like this. Well, it's only happened in a handful of cases in Florida where not only is it overturned, but unanimously by all seven justices voting to acquit. I mean, they didn't reverse for a new trial or a new penalty phase. They reversed and remanded with directions to enter judgments of acquittal, which says a lot about their analysis and review of just what this case was seriously lacking. It shows a ton. And I didn't, again, read the transcripts. But um, it's 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 I, I my my mind was blown when I read that um, it's uh, and I got to assume that the Florida Supreme Court is made up of mostly, if not all conservative judges there. I think at the time, you know, there's seven justices. I think four of them at the time were known to be very staunch conservatives and the other uh, liberal. But. One of the things that I will tell you that I found out later, you know, when you look at how their analysis works, there's seven justices on the court. Each of those justices have about seven attorneys working for them. When they get these cases, you know, they go through them top to bottom, front to back, left to right, inside and out, and every other way you can imagine. They really tear these things apart. Now, they're reading cold facts from a cold record. But they get everything, all the pretrial hearings, the entire transcript of the trial, all of the, you know, evidence that was presented against you, the rebuttal evidence, the hypothesis of innocence. They get the whole thing from start to finish and they take it apart every way you can imagine and go through it word for word. One thing I always suggest people do, which you can find online, is to go back and watch the oral arguments that took place in April of 2017. I just watched it last night with my girlfriend here. And the one thing you notice is, and I always 
you know, understood from watching these that, you know, you personally don't go to the oral argument. It's just your appellate attorney and the assistant attorney general arguing against you. But they videotape all this and they play it live over the Florida channel and it's cataloged online for you to go back and watch it. But watch these justices when they ask certain questions of the assistant attorney general and their expressions and responses when the answer just makes no sense or, you know, and it looked to me like they were trying to help this uh, assistant attorney general out and, you know, giving her, you know, some lifelines uh, because of some of the things she was saying and statements she was making. I will go back and watch that and I'll, we'll try to put a link to that for our viewers and listeners. Cause I think they're going to go want to uh, listen to that. Uh, I I'll bet you your lawyers were shocked by this. Well, I'll tell you what one of the conversations consisted of, and it was basically the fact that I believe the prosecutors in this case were pretty confident that if they were able to secure a conviction or trial, that it would have been reversed on direct review. So it the, was wait, basically, hold on, hold on. The, the prosecutors believe that or your attorneys believe that? No, that was what my opinion was, that they knew that the situation they had, the shape of a case that they had, that if they were able to secure a conviction, it would be reversed on direct review simply because they never presented any evidence that even connected me to the crime scene, much less committing the crime. Their whole case was about, like I said before, assassinating my character and insulting my integrity. I was supposed to be the lying, cheating, philandering. You know, they had this theory they called the um, the bachelor lifestyle. And then they had came up with something in their closing argument they called the death clock you know, referring to me being served the paternity action and then the murders occurring, you know, I mean, they, they pretty much came up with a nice story to tell that I don't, I don't think Hollywood could have done better, you know, with their writers and producers with. So tell me what you're up to these days. I'm back in the transportation business. I drive trucks nationwide all through the U S and Canada, and I primarily do entertainment transportation. But when I'm not out on a tour with somebody, we're, doing general, you know, this essential freight, they call it with the pandemic going on, you know, just hauling freight again. Are you working for any organizations trying to abolish the death penalty or talking about innocence? Oh, yes. I work very closely with both witness to innocence and Floridians for the alternatives to the death penalty. In fact, they've recently elected me to their board of directors at FADP. So we're very involved in not only trying to affect legislative change and criminal justice reform, but chiefly the primary objective is abolishing the death penalty for many reasons that, you know, we really should not have a death penalty. So we will ac- include links to all of those projects as well um, on our, our show notes here. And and you have not been compensated by Florida yet for your uh, three or four years in prison is, or more than that. I mean, you, you were, you were eight or nine years in eight and between, a half years altogether, eight, eight and a half years in jail and prison. Um, uh, are you fighting for compensation? Yes, sir. Right now we're in the process of trying to uh, articulate a claim for a federal civil rights lawsuit. But um, for the most part, the state of Florida, they do have a compensation statute on the books, the problem is, if you read that statute, it comes with this, its own inherent roadblocks and obstacles. And to this day, I think barely a handful of people have actually benefited from it. 
it's just got some language in it that's really counterproductive to its use and and success in compensating someone who's been wrongfully uh, prosecuted and convicted and incarcerated for something we now know they did not do. Ron Wright, what a crazy, interesting journey uh, this is. The story is is mind-blowing to me. Congratulations on your uh, win in 2017. Um, I'm happy for you that you're exonerated. Uh, I, 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 I love your honesty throughout this interview um, and that you and I were kind of on the same page when it came to, you know, the circumstantial evidence and, uh, thank God for you that the Supreme court, uh, has it in their constitution that they must review it, that they did a, a thorough review. They believed your, they believed your story. They believed that there was no evidence and you're a free man. And, well, uh, I'll tell you something about that. It re- it wasn't really my story. And even though I was exonerated, I don't believe I won anything simply because here to this day, all this time later, we still do not know what was going on in that house, who was responsible for what took place and why two people's lives are lost that shouldn't be gone today. But it, it's one of these things where you know, I, I I was supposed to have a meeting with the former uh, elected state attorney along with one of the FADP, uh, the executive director. And when he was told that I would be attending that meeting, and it was strictly to talk about, you know, the way they seek the death penalty so highly in that circuit and, you know, what we could discuss in terms of not seeking the death penalty, uh, he heard I would be there and he all of a sudden decided no meeting if I'm going to be there. I'm like, well, I'm not, yeah, I've never been known to go, you know, ranting and raving and yelling and hollering or, you know, completely acting out of character or out of, out of control with anybody. And that certainly wasn't going to happen then, but it was just, you know, he, he just decided, nope, he's not going to meet with us if I'm going to attend that meeting. And specifically because my case came out of his circuit. Mm. But this wasn't a story of, you know, anyone believing my story. It was more a matter of, the state simply, you know, that what they did is brought a theory to this to the jury. It was their theory that it had to have been the black baby's father who didn't want to take responsibility for it and not the white daughter and older sister of the child who collected, you know, over half a million in life insurance. And I'll tell you this as well. The motive that was assigned to me over the medical bills was something in the area of fifty thousand dollars. This is something that the state even presented evidence through her civil attorney would have been covered by the TRICARE health care insurance that I had by being on active duty orders, and it was also retroactive back then. So I really would not have been on the hook for that. But didn't the state argues I'm the only person that had motive when the truth is you've got the daughter who somehow had to have known about these life insurance policies and knew who to be contacting to inquire about them just a few days after, you know, it all started on a Friday and we had the evidence and testimony that she was making inquiries about the life insurance policies the following Monday. Well, when you look at the math, she had 10 times the motive I had. I would not have collected a single dime from any of this. I didn't even know there was such an insurance policy. But the odd thing is that she had to be well aware of is the fact the way the policies were set up. This is a woman who had one policy through her employment. Then she went out and bought a second policy where she put $100,000 on herself. 
and $400,000 on this child. Now, my attorney tells me he knows a lot of very wealthy people, you know, athletes, actors, and doctors, and other attorneys, and he couldn't find anybody who would put four times the amount of life insurance they put on themselves on a child, an infant child at that. So when you think about it, the first question that pops in my head is, well, what one single thing in this world has to happen before any insurance company would pay out the first dime of $400,000 to a one sole beneficiary? And the simple answer is my son had to die. Whether I knew the child had a relationship with him, and the truth is I've never laid eyes on this child. And the daughter and, and those and her connections had access to the house, DNA everywhere around the house and things like that. So I get, I get where you're going. Uh, I think we're going to leave this interview right there. Um, thank you for being with us. Thank you for being uh, on open mic. And I appreciate you uh, sharing your story with us today. Well, I've seen uh, recordings of your prior shows and I appreciate what you do. And I'm happy to, you know, talk to you anytime and come on again with you. If you ever need anything else, you know, uh, any other questions or any other discussions you want to have, you know, being a prior law enforcement officer, I always tell people, you know, I was never for or against a death penalty. One of the reasons is, is when you're a road patrolman, you know, you're busy getting back out there to answer the next call. And for the most part, when I clear central booking, unless I get called to testify in court, my involvement in the case is over with. But, you know, now that I've been dropped right smack dab in the middle of the, you know, pressure cooker of it like this, I've definitely taken an interest in it now. And I see the problems and the issues that, you know, a lot of people advocate for and against it with. But at the same time, you know, when you've walked through these these steps and lived through this experience, it, it definitely gave me a whole new perspective and belief, belief and understanding about just what we're doing in our criminal justice system that desperately needs to be repaired and corrected. So thank you for all your work and help in exposing this, bringing it to light and helping people further see the things that they don't typically see or hear of every day. My pleasure, Ron. Thank you for those words. And uh, it was very nice to meet you. You as well. Thank you. Okay, take care. There you have it. Wow. What a story from Ron Wright. Uh, didn't know what to expect. Didn't know anything. I was, uh, I loved the give and take with him and I, that, that basically he would have convicted himself. I probably would have voted to convict on circumstantial evidence. And boy, according to him, we would have been way wrong. And, uh, the Supreme court, the Florida Supreme court exonerated him based on circumstantial evidence, based upon the fact that there was no evidence, there's going to be lots of things in our show notes that if you want to learn more about his case, listen to the arguments, check out the uh, organizations he's working for, please do. If you know anybody who'd find this episode interesting, fascinating, please forward it to them, tag them in it, comment, like it, subscribe to Open Mic, and thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Take care.